What makes a martyr be a martyr? It was sometime in the last week I came upon a story that was recirculated. It's, it's at least a year old um, about a group of missionaries in Syria. Uh, I think there were 12 of them, 11 missionaries and one son of one of the missionaries who were all beheaded um, last year, apparently, uh, by ISIS. It was horrible to read about uh, the evil that these, um, these, these ISIS people are you know, just demonically infused doing to these Christians. Um, and it was so sad, um, but it was also amazing. You know, as, I, as I read, the, the, the mission agency head talked about, or one of the leaders there talked about how they were appealing to them to leave the city. Um, and, you know, the Lord said, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another, you know, so that, that's on the record in, in the Bible. But they said, you know, uh, we, we care about these people and we want them to know Jesus. We want them to understand the gospel. So they stayed and they lost their lives uh, for the gospel and for these people. And um, in one situation, this lead pastor's 12-year-old son was murdered uh, in front of him. Um, and it's just beyond mind-boggling belief to understand how he could go through that. And so it, it raised this question in me, what, what makes a martyr able to be a martyr? Um, what would we do in that situation? And, and I hope today that we're going we're gonna to get there, that by the end of this morning we'll have a clearer picture of, of what gets a group of 11 committed Christians and even a young 12-year-old believer gets them across that line to say, I am willing to compare I'll consider all things as rubbish compared to the, the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I hope that we'll get there. Um, so keep that in the back of your mind as we think about this message today. Um, so we have the privilege of talking today about the greatest event in the history of the universe, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to spend a few sermons in this. We're not going to do one message and move on. We're going, to, we're going to nurse this a little bit as we land the plane of the book of John. We are in the sweetest part of the book of John. And so we don't want to race through it. We want to taste the resurrection. We want to mingle in the resurrection. We want the resurrection of Jesus Christ to affect us. So we're looking at the resurrection this morning. And we're going to deal with the first episode, the first appearing of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. So would you guys pray with me that the Holy Spirit would meet us this morning? that he would fill us with himself and give us a renewed hope in what we're going to hear about. Let's go to the Lord. I need prayer, man. I don't know about you guys, but I need prayer. I feel it so much. So let's go. Father, oh Lord, even that word, Father, what we're going to read about today, to be able to call you Father. Lord, open up our hearts afresh to the unbelievable privilege calling you Father, calling Jesus brother. God, you know how inadequate, in some ways even sinfully lacking my preparation has been, but you are so good and glorious and powerful. So I ask you to have mercy on me. Have mercy on your people this morning to bless the preaching of your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, nurture us, us. husband, your bride. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
So I am going to go through this passage, uh, little passage by little passage, and we'll take a little break, talk a little bit about it, come back to the passage, talk a little bit about it, and at the end, we'll go through a couple of, of, of themes that I hope that really nourish us this morning as we read. Um, so we're going to start in John 20, verse 1, we're going to go through 18. What has happened up to this point is that Jesus has died on the cross, and his body was taken down, and it was the uh, Joseph of Arimathea went to the governing authorities and asked for the body. He was given permission uh, to have the body. This was largely because Pilate did not really believe Jesus was a, a capital punishment deserving uh, t- uh, uh, rebel. And Joseph took his own um, grave, and he took his own apparently his own shroud that he bought with his own money, and he gave it to the Lord, and he put him inside this little grave that was really a grave for a rich man um, and he put the Lord in that grave and he put his own clothing on the Lord and um, his own burial clothes on the Lord and, and there he laid him and, and they couldn't finish doing all they needed to do to get Jesus' burial ready in the traditional Jewish manner because it was Friday right Sabbath is coming and they can't do that work on the Sabbath so they leave and they don't finish so Sunday morning really early Sabbath is over and they're free to, to work Mary with some other ladies that John doesn't point out, but other Gospels do, comes to the grave to continue the work of preparing Jesus' body for burial. And that's where we're picking up the story here in John 20, verse 1. So we're going to read through a, a little bit here, then we'll talk. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So, seeing that Jesus is missing, Mary probably believes that he's been taken by thieves, or religious authorities, or maybe workers for for, for Joseph to get him to a new place. Grave robbers were, were a real phenomenon then. And she runs off to Peter and John. Almost certainly um, the way that John refers to himself anonymously in this gospel is this phrase, the one that Jesus loved. And, and so she's running to them and she tells them that he's gone and they, they book it. Okay, so we, we pick up in verse 3. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw... And believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. This is an action movie. (laughs) Mary runs to John and Peter in alarm. They run to the tomb. So there's this sense of great concern. There's this urgency that John wants us to feel. To put it in today's terms, they are freaking out. (laughs) they feel great concern for Jesus' body. They love their Lord. 
He has been completely, um, horribly humiliated and murdered. They don't know what to do with that, but they know that they love him. And so they care about him. They don't want his body abandoned or trashed or mutilated. They don't want that dishonor on him. And there's also perhaps a sense of really wanting to move swiftly and quickly to learn whatever they can and get back to being undercover. Because remember, the the government has just murdered their leader. So they wouldn't be feeling too safe themselves. John peeks in and he waits outside. Peter runs straight in. Peter always runs straight in to whatever it is. And he looks, this Greek word here is a different word than saw that John uses for himself. Peter does this this careful noticing. It's, it's this word called arao. It means he's really trying to analyze what's going on. And he doesn't understand. No thief would leave clothes. These clothes were especially expensive ones because they belonged to Joseph. His shroud or burial clothes. No authorities would want a naked corpse. They would want to get rid of all the evidence and they'd want to do it quick. What's the point of leaving burial clothes there? And there's another mystery intimated by the Greek and just about all that I've read in studying this chapter and this subject. Um, The language here conveys this idea that doesn't come through in the English, very possibly, that there's a, a real miracle that they see in the way the clothes are situated. The way the clothes are situated, it's it's according to several commentators, it's as if Jesus' body has just disappeared from the clothes while it was in it. Um, that's what some commentators say, most of all that I read. And he just doesn't understand it. It's like his body just walked through it. <laughs> but John sees and gets it right away. There's something about that situation that hits him and he believes. He believes. The one he saw walk on water, the one he saw transfigured in glory on the mountain, he's not dead. (laughs) And now we come back to Mary. Picking up in verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been laying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary. Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni! Which is Hebrew for teacher. 
Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And she gave them his message. So let's go back and look at a couple of spots here. Fill in some explanation. And let's talk about the depth of it after that. Angels can take a glorious form as they did before the shepherds upon Jesus' birth. So you wonder, why isn't Mary freaking out at the angels? But Hebrews tells us that angels can also hide among us in forms and separate from humans. It's real possible that Mary saw them appearing as humans. She just didn't know who they were or what they were doing there. When she sees Jesus, she doesn't know who he is either. And we don't know exactly why this is, but a similar thing happens in Luke 24 when the risen Jesus meets two disciples along the road and somehow completely hides his identity before them until he breaks bread with them. (laughs) Then he disappears. So whether this is happening with Mary is not clear, but what's clear is 1 Corinthians 15, if you look through that chapter, it's rich in resurrection theology. What's clear is that glorified bodies are renewed in a way that while they are connected to our present bodies, remember, Jesus still has nail prints, and that's probably by decision, by his own desire. They are in yet some way gloriously different in their renewed state than our present bodies. I mean, sometimes I wondered, were his teeth straightened? (laughs) You know, was he, because of the fall, was he born with crooked teeth or a kind of a nose that wasn't exactly aligned the way it was meant to be? Did his eyes sparkle like they never had before? I mean, I don't know. But I do know that his body is glorious in a way it hadn't been before. So she doesn't recognize him at first. And then he says her name. And she collapses, probably collapses at his feet, clinging. She's clinging quite tightly from, from everything that we, we, we see here. And he says, in effect, Mary, not yet. And this can mean two things. It can mean... Probably at least a couple of things. There's a lot of conjecture about this. But I, I, I can see two big things this means. Like, Mary, don't cling to me. It's, it, it can mean, I'm not here to stay yet, Mary. I, I, I'm so glad that you love me and you want, but you can't keep me yet. We're not done with the program. I have to go to my Father's right hand. And we have some work to do before I come back finally and fully. Another interpretation is, Mary, I, I haven't gone to my Father yet. I'll be around for a bit. I got 40 days here with you. You don't have to wrap me up in a box and take me home. I'm not, I'm not leaving again right away. Don't feel like you can't let me go today. In either case, Jesus then commissions Mary. And Mary Magdalene becomes the first missionary in the history of the gospel. She takes the message of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the apostles who will take it to the world. And, and she, she also falls in the footsteps. She, she, she's the, the, the ancestor of great missionary women like Elizabeth Elliot and Amy Carmichael, who throughout history witnessed just as she did to the risen Lord. So that's some explanation on our text. Now I just want to go back and touch on a few themes here that I think are really resonant in this passage for us this morning. Believe it or not, there's three. Right? It's the traditional number. 
I didn't do it on purpose. It really turned out that way. So I hope we can draw encouragement from these themes. I, I see three really important themes here that Jesus' resurrection calls us to. Intimacy, identity, and inheritance. Would you believe there's not only three, but they all start with the same letter? I got into seeing identity like right away. I was like scrambling for inheritance, and I, I said, forget it. And I just dropped in my head, inheritance. So yeah, I was going to use like, well, I won't go to that. Back to, back to the message. So let's go to intimacy first. Intimacy. Jesus rose from the dead to give us an intimate relationship with him for eternity. And we are meant to experience the most soul-satisfying foretaste of that eternal hope right now. We have to wait for its fullness, but we don't have to wait for its presence. We have to wait for its fullness, but we don't have to wait for its presence. Let's come back to the passage in verses 14 to 16. Mary's world has crumbled. She is sobbing outside the tomb. Remember who Jesus was to Mary. He had delivered her from demonic possession by seven demons. So seven demons had possessed her soul. Her life before Jesus was a horror movie. Probably, I mean, absolutely beyond anything that you could ever see in a horror movie because it was real. Think about anybody you've seen in a psych ward or in a movie. Seven demons possessed this woman. And I'm not saying that anyone in a psych ward is possessed by demons. I just mean that there is a, there is a, just a sadness, a, a, a bondage, a prison that we can see in these movie depictions. The psychiatric, you know, when they really try to egg it up. Mental illness is, is no stranger to me, so I, I, I hope that's not offensive. But, um, but Mary had lived a horrible life before she met Jesus. By everything we can attempt to understand. He had saved her from that in a moment. And she had devoted herself to him for the rest of his ministry. She believed he was the great king, come to redeem the world and set things right. He was her hope her personal hope from the horror of her previous life. And now to add insult to the horror of his unjust torture and murder on the cross, someone has stolen his body. She's a mess. Doesn't understand what these angels are about. And she turns to leave and she sees someone standing there. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni. This, to me, is one of the most tender, beautiful, powerful moments in the universe. Certainly in Scripture. R.C. Sproul says this, Jesus put an end to her grief or confusion. Jesus put an end to her current state of entire devastation with one simple word. Her name. Jesus put an end to her entire devastation by looking her in the eye 
and saying one simple word with tenderness, with compassion. He said her name, Mary. Isn't this the foretaste of what we long for? Isn't this the presence now of the eternity we're desperate for? To hear him say our name in the midst of our upheaval, in the midst of our groaning, in the midst of our despair. Believer, isn't this the deepest desire of your heart? To be addressed with saving tenderness, not with judgment, not with condemnation, not with indifference, not with fear, but with tenderness. Mary. Rachel. Fatima. David. Jen. We're in crisis. We don't need answers from God. We need the presence of God. Very often, God does not give us answers, but He is always willing to give us His presence. It's not enough for the soul to know about God, the soul of a born again believer will only be satisfied. By being known by God. And that is why Jesus died and rose. Listen, if I could if I could put in a few words the goal of the gospel. You know, John Piper wrote this book, God is the Gospel. If I could put in a few words the goal of the crucifixion, the goal of the resurrection, I would use that phrase right now. Jesus said to her. That's what it's for. That you would know that you are known personally, tenderly, savingly, lovingly, forever by your Savior. He would say your name in your chaos. He'd say my name in my chaos, in my fear, in my struggle. There's nothing that compares to that. A few days before Jesus died on the cross, well, really the night before he died on the cross, a few days before he appears to Mary, he tells the disciples, and we remember this from the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Listen, if you think anything else will really satisfy you than that paragraph, you are wrong. If you don't know that that's what you need, I am so grateful for the opportunity to tell you that you you are in the right place this morning 
because you're in the place where I get to tell you you are dead wrong. <laughs> if you think anything else is really going to satisfy you than being known by Jesus. And if you can be fully satisfied in your heart today without His presence, without His intimacy, you should be concerned about your spiritual health. We were made for Him above all other people, places, and things. You were made for Him. And the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ who knows His sheep by name longs to bring you intimacy with His Father. That is why the Holy Spirit gives us prayers like Ephesians 3, 16-21. We need it. We need that power. We need to cry out to God, Lord, out of the riches of Your glorious grace, through Your Holy Spirit, strengthen me in my inner man so that Christ will dwell in my heart through faith that I might have power together with all my brothers and sisters, to know how high and wide and long and deep is your love. And to be filled with this love that surpasses knowledge. Yeah, amen. And then Paul wraps up that prayer in the most beautiful bow. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine... And, and, and isn't it, listen, Paul says, he, here's the, here's what God's able to do. He's able to do exceedingly beyond all we ask or imagine, okay? So Paul, let's, let's, let's reverse that prayer. Paul says, thesis, thesis paper. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we ask or imagine. So in other words, ask whatever, ask whatever you want, Paul says, because God can do it. And what does Paul say to ask for? Nothing is off limits. This is God. Cattle on a thousand hills. All the Cadillacs, all the mansions, anything you want. Eternity, you know, good health. What do you want? No more wars. No more racism. No Trump, no Clinton. Ask whatever you want. Stop. What does he ask for? He asks for you to be able to know Jesus' love. Don't settle, folks. Please, don't settle. Albert, don't settle. That's what we got to have here. We got to have that. If we got nothing else as a church, we got to have that. If you guys need to scooch and get roped off seats and all that stuff, we got to have the love of Jesus Christ and we'll be fine. Number two, identity. Jesus died and rose to give you a new identity. He says to Mary, but go find my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Oh, this is the song of a conquering king. This is, this Jesus is stoked. I mean, I'm, okay, I'm taking some liberties. I don't know exactly his emotional intonation when he said this, but I can't read that without hearing a victory song. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Go tell my brothers. This is the first time 
in the whole Gospel of John that Jesus has ever called, ever called his disciples, my brothers. Oh, it is sweet to his heart to say that. How he has longed his whole life to look these men in the eye and say, you're my brothers now. I have paid for your family membership. I have cast your sins from the east as from the west. There is nothing holding me back from giving you the eternal bear hug I've always wanted to give you. You are my brothers and my sisters now. And then to reinforce this solidarity, my father and your father. My God and your God. The risen Christ in taking our sins upon himself and removing them from us is able to give us the greatest gift imaginable, a unity with him and with his Father that is unspeakable. You may not walk in feeling this way. I didn't walk into this text feeling this way many times as I was preparing to preach it. so grateful for the gift of being able to look at this text and preach it to you. But my desire right now is to pray to you, brothers and sisters. Jesus is your brother. Jesus is your brother. Linda, Jesus is your brother. Is Lori Madison here? I want to pick on Lori. When you see Lori today, go up to her and tell her, Lori, Jesus is your brother. And I'll get in trouble. Jesus says to you, my father is your father. Hey, Steve, Jesus' father is your father. Go and tell my brothers. Brothers and sisters, go and tell each other at care group this week. Tell each other after church. This is what he died and rose to give you the privilege of saying to one another, Hey, Jesus is your brother. Shannon, Jesus told me that his father is your father. What an identity. Yes, we're sinners. We struggle. Yes, we suffer. Jesus is your brother. (laughs) Your big brother is Jesus. Finally, inheritance. We have an immovable, unconquerable, death-destroying, sin-destroying hope. First Peter, it is the namesake of our church, says this to us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I see this truth, this inheritance, this indestructible hope of resurrection. I see it wrapped into Jesus' question to Mary. Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? kind of rephrase this question in my own heart this week as I read it. In light of the resurrection, Jesus asking me, in light of the resurrection, His resurrection, my resurrection to come, guaranteed by His resurrection, in light of all that, Albert, why are you crying? Don't you know who you're looking for? Why are you hopeless? Why are you despairing? Don't you know you're Jesus? Listen, I know we suffer. I know that we sin. I know that we groan. That is part of our inheritance until the real inheritance comes. Finally and fully. And the Psalms are given to us for that. Psalm 13, David's not ashamed to say, How long will you forget me forever? That's not where he ends. Right? Blessed be the Lord who has heard my voice, the sound of my groaning. He has heard my cry for help. So we're all living somewhere in the middle of Psalm 13. But we know a lot more than David knew. So Jesus would say to us, Why are you crying? Don't you remember who I am? The one we're looking for is a risen, conquering, death-destroying king who loves us, who will keep us, who will see us through, who makes us more than conquerors. We are brothers with an unconquerable king. And in him, we are more than conquerors. We will conquer our sin. We are working on it right now. We are not finished with it yet. We will conquer our sin. We will be done with sin. It will lie in the dust Listen, Mary is crying because she doesn't quite know who Jesus is right now. She doesn't understand that Jesus is not a defeated, tragic hero. He's not some martyr who ever lives for the sake of the glory of suffering eternally. He's not some victim who lives by showing us the the morality of being a good loser. No, he is a risen, conquering king who is taking us with him. He is done paying for our sins and he is now in the business of renovation and you are his renovation project. He is committed to transforming your suffering into his character in you. He's not going to give up He's not going to keep you from suffering. He is committed to transform your suffering as you hold on to his truth into his character in you. And he's given us a mission like Mary's to say to each other, you are a brother and a sister of the king. And next week, a mission to the world, as we'll see. So who are you looking for?
You know, there's another way to look at this question. Are you looking for something else than hope in the risen Savior? Is your hope set like it is in, you know, often in my life? Why should I mean, of course it is. We battle, right, with, with hopes in the wrong place. Your hope is in your girlfriend. Your hope is in your peers not thinking you're a loser. Your hope is in your career succeeding. Your hope is in your kids getting it together. Your hope is in you getting it together for your kids. Your, your hope, for some of us right now, where we are in our, our national situation, our hope is in a candidate. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that to ourselves, but, but, but what comes out of our heart, the passion, the words, the, the posts on Facebook, I'm trolling everyone. Bob, I'm trolling you. What, what comes out of our hearts would say, you know, oh man, I mean, if, if I'm looking at some, some of your Facebook posts, I'm thinking out of the heart, the mouth speaks, out of the heart, the hand posts. Where's your hope, brother and sister? Bono's not my theologian, but he wrote a beautiful thing, a song called October. I don't know if he considered that it was the month that leads up to November's election, but he wrote these words in 1982 or something like that. October, and the trees are stripped bare of all they wear. What do I care? October, and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall but you go on and on we look for a city that is not here yet this is not our home Jesus is not leading you to a hope that's definable in this world in this world's standards this world's nations this world's cultures. He, he knows this life cannot satisfy us. The president is not going to save you. God has written in his book every day for you before one, one of it came to be. Do you think Donald or Hillary can really scrawl over God's handwriting a better future for you? How did these persecuted Christians make it? They believed what they believed what Abraham believed when he raised his knife to sacrifice his son. You know, I read that story for a long time and I always thought what guts Abraham had. What what a moral heart he had to to sacrifice and give and sacrifice and give. But you know what I think it's Romans 4 tells us? Do you know what Abraham was really thinking when he lifted the knife over Abraham? When he lifted the knife over Isaac? He was thinking, oh, God will just raise him up from the dead. Well, God told me, God gave me a promise that Abraham, that my son Isaac is going to be the father of, of a great nation. And now God's asking me to kill him, which is weird and I don't know what to do with that, right? We still kind of don't. <laughs> 
But Abraham wasn't thinking, I've got to sacrifice my son, period. I've got to do this moral thing and give over my most treasured possession, period. Because if I don't, I'm an idolater, period. That's not what Abraham was thinking. Abraham was thinking, God is able to entrust what I am giving over to him for that last day. If I give God my most treasured love, this boy, I'm not sacrificing him. I'm keeping him safe. God's told me that he's going to he's going to be the father. God's promise is that Isaac's going to be the father of many nations and so then God's just going to raise him up. God's just going to raise him up. It wasn't martyrdom that Abraham was giving into. It was trust in his father's promise of eternal hope and resurrection. To Abraham, he wasn't making some grand sacrifice. He was just trusting the guy that was going to preserve his son's life. Jesus said to the disciples about their witness for him, he said, some of you will be given over to death. I love this phrase. I love this. Jesus just doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't even explain it. He says, some of you will be given over to death, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. I mean, I'm just like, uh, some of you will be beheaded, but not an inch of your body will be harmed. This is the resurrection of the dead. This is where our hope needs to be. This is how we will suffer for him. If things go bad and the government goes bad and, you know, Trump does some crazy thing or Hillary does something crazy. We are not home. We are going to be fine. We need to believe that. That is how these martyrs made it. That is how these 11 men, except for probably John who wrote this gospel, gave their lives to God because they knew that his promise was sure. The resurrection of the dead destroyed their fear. And it will and can destroy our fears and give us hope. Amen.